What's up? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm an artist and a designer and the founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. And this is the Art Pays Me podcast. I love talking to creative people about their business, their successes, their challenges, and how they make the world a better place with their work. Let's get into it. Welcome to Art Pays Me. Today we have Christine Gaudi. Actually, am I pronouncing that correctly? Okay, so Christine, um, we met initially earlier this year. Uh, I think we spoke on a panel together. We were just trying to figure out which panel that was. I think it was for the Creative Entrepreneurship Lab at NASCAD. Yeah. And yeah, like you were the, you just seemed like such a boss. Like the stuff you were saying was so on point, and I loved it. And I thought that this overlap of creative and business and just being um, unapologetic about what you do. I think that's a, a great thing for this audience to, to learn about. So uh, what is it exactly that you do? Yeah, so I'm co-founder and CEO of Granville Biomedical and myself and my co-founder started off three, almost three years ago, uh, designing different anatomical models for healthcare practitioners and trainees to rehearse various procedures within women's health. Um, that was a pretty exciting uh, journey for us. And uh, we're kind of moving more into medical device design and development now. So it's been a really interesting uh, few years. So you didn't initially start off with the intention of going after the medical community? Um, medical device design was my background, but we didn't, I didn't see a fit for that within the company when we first started. We were working more in the education space, simulation and training. Um, and we just saw a huge gap there in academia where the hands-on learning was lacking, especially in women's health, which yeah. is really scary to think about because there's so many, you know, patients' lives in the hands of practitioners and trainees, and you want to think that they get the best training possible, especially, you know, in Canada and the U.S. and places where um, everything from medical devices to healthcare is is so regulated. And, uh, and so we just felt like there was a gap there. And deep down, I, I always wanted us to move more towards the medical device design realm. I just wasn't sure how that was going to how that was going to actually happen. Uh, and I kind of assumed it would be within women's health. And it still might be, uh, for the most part. But uh, during COVID, we we did what everyone called the pivot where we we put our hand up and said we can help out with, uh, you know, domestic supply shortages for PPE and different types of medical devices in Canada. And we found ourselves making face shields, um, button pushers for elevator doors that we were 3D printing, just simple things like that. And then we got into more biocompatible um, nasal swabs. And it was an easy transition for us because we were already 3D printing most of our products and we had biocompatible 3D printers. And it was a really, it was a really um, natural evolution of our company to do that. And that has led us down a very deep rabbit hole with Health Canada and at the federal level with the government and funding to really start kind of reallocating all of our efforts towards the medical device R&D research and development space. Yeah. That is super cool. Uh, uh, so I am in the other part of my life. I work 
for Dalhousie Medical School. So I've I've seen um, some of the places where uh, the, the medical students get educated and the cadavers they work on and things like that. Um, were they some of your customers at that time or were, were you like kind of going across everywhere? Well, they say cadavers are going to be completely removed from healthcare training eventually just because it's expensive to store them and there's less and less people donating their bodies to science. So the right. story goes. Um, and so now they're looking at more and more simulation tactics in healthcare training. So you see really high end types of simulation training in neuroscience, for example, where they they get to, um, you know, basically simulate operating on a brain before they ever do that in person. Um, but other types of healthcare, like women's health, didn't really have that same type of high technology and high fidelity technology and still doesn't. So, uh, so we basically created anatomical models to simulate and replicate the female anatomy. So you'd get the most accurate hands-on training next to doing it on a cadaver. And so that's what we were aiming to do. And we scientifically proven through our, our novel recipes for skin, fat, and muscle that this is the closest hands-on training that you can get using models like ours. Yeah. So that's what we want it to do. We want to basically replace the, the uh, cadavers in medical school and get the hands-on training to continue um, outside of software or anything virtual. That's interesting. And, and also uh, in the other part of my world, ideal in information management. So there, I've we've come across some privacy issues and things like that. And how long do you retain certain information about the people who donated their bodies and things like that? So it, this could this actually could eliminate some of those issues as well. So, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so uh, one thing that was also interesting to me is what what exactly is? Did you say biocompatible three D printing? Yeah. Yeah. So basically it's using a medical grade resin. So it's like a liquid mm -hmm. and you're 3D printing products and devices using that as opposed to a plastic. So um, a very common type of 3D printing is when you see it's almost like a glue gun. It's melted plastic that produces mm -hmm. uh, an object or item. Um, and the kind of 3D printing that we are involved in is more so printing from a resin. So the fidelity and, and the detail in it is very, very high level. It's also uh, patient friendly, patient safe, um, and we can easily prototype medical devices and actually bring them through validation testing um, using 3D printed parts before we ever go to an injection mold. And mm -hmm. an injection mold is what you do when you, when you anticipate you'll be making hundreds of thousands or millions of a device, a disposable consumable device you 3d printing is a little bit slow compared to what you need when you start to ramp up and scale up manufacturing. And when you do that, you go to an injection mold, which uh, does all that for you at a very, very fast, rapid pace. So you can produce the millions per month versus probably thousands a month using 3d printing. Right. So how do you figure out, um, say like the modeling side for like, for instance, everyone's nose is going to be different or their face is going to be shaped differently for the uh, like PPE. How do you figure that out? Yeah, well, we moved away from PPE. We were just mostly making face shields and what people, whatever people needed at the early okay. onset of COVID. Um, so we weren't doing anything custom in that regard, but in terms of what we're doing now, um, we do a lot of different types of swabs and 
there's not really a custom swab for okay. an individual. Um, it's basically a one size fits all, which I know sounds very strange based on, you know, everyone's anatomy is so different. But when we when we developed our women's health anatomical models, we actually did the research to determine what are the average um, sizes and shapes of anatomy and uh, all of the different components of women's anatomy um, so that we can do an average um, size of, of everything because it's too hard. It's very difficult to accommodate all the different variations of, of human anatomy out there. So we decided just to kind of fall somewhere in the mid range. Um, and so that we could, you know, claim this is the average size adult genitalia or female anatomy or whatever it is. Yeah. We're on. yeah. Got you. And did, did you ever find people asking specifics that say, Hey, could you do this version or, or that kind of version? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we, if we had to chase after every idea that was thrown at us since we started, I think we'd be chasing our tails forever. Um, there's been a lot, and there's been some amazing ideas kind of brought to us and we've acted on some of them. And so every time we get ideas that come to us, we, we first want to analyze, is this something that other people want as well? So a pelvic floor physiotherapist came to us a year and a half ago and said, Hey, it'd be really great if I had a model that I could uh, simulate and just teach with to my patients before I ask them to perform certain procedures on themselves or I perform certain procedures on them. So we, we really got to the heart of that to figure out what type of anatomy do you need? What features does that require that you're gonna be detailing in your uh, appointments? And you know how can we customize this for pelvic floor physiotherapy? So that was a really great area that we moved into and we developed a product um, that's pretty beneficial for them. And I think for a lot of other areas as well, um, it's basically a female a piece of female anatomy. So yeah. it's a vulva model with a vaginal canal. You can see a visible cervix. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, you know, you would like to think every doctor's office would have one of those to teach patients but about their own body. No, they don't at all. Um, sexual mm -hmm. health educators, pelvic floor physiotherapists, gynecologists, and, and women never, ever have ever had anything like that. And it's really challenging because whereas uh, men's bodies are very external, uh, women's are internal. So you don't, you never, ever really even know what things look like, what's normal, what's not, what's, you know, red flags in terms of health conditions, what what's um you know average and uh and so i think this kind of thing is beneficial for a lot of different areas in our in our world in a very general sense cool i like and i like what you said there about the the um not chasing every idea i mean my my business is a lot more simple but it's all the time people say hey you know what you should do blah 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 and i'm like yeah that's a good idea however yeah. i can't i can't yeah. possibly do all of it I think, yeah. And the biggest lessons I've learned in the past year or two is, you know, it's, I've learned a lot about women's health, of course, but more importantly, I learned so much about entrepreneurship and as a designer, um, you know, a graduate of NASCAD, you know, every type of art, I'll tell you this, like whether it's design or art, I do believe is a business or it could be mm -hmm. a business. 
And it has to be treated as such because every type of art or design can have a, uh, an output or some sort of um, end product. And there's a e-commerce or there's a commerce factor involved in that selling, negotiating, you know, your craft or your services or your skills or your products. And we learned so much over the past couple of years because you know, we we started this company just from the ground up. There's grassroots, like no funding, no nothing. And we quickly had to understand how to find funding. And that's something in art school and design school that we don't learn a lot about. How, as a designer, I went on after NASCAD, I did my master's. And I think that kind of helped me get the business mind going. And that was really beneficial for me, but everyone's different. Um, but that really helped me kind of think more broadly about design and how this applies to creating products and medical devices and selling those because the, the craft and the creation of products and art and design and, and products or whatever else is one thing, but then it's, how do you find those customers? How do you sell to those customers? How do you position yourself differently? How do you create a product that has demand attached to it? And uh, how do you, first of all, how do you identify a gap out there where there's something that you can fill in terms of a product service skill? And then how do you fill that gap by, by offering what you do? And, and that's really challenging because you really need to, to get that right. But I think that's what a lot of entrepreneurs get wrong in the first couple of years. I really, I thought about this so much lately. We always, it's so common to get it wrong, whether it's the product you're offering, um, the skills you're offering, whether it's the price point you offer it at, whether it's the customer base you're chasing. I would venture to guess, this is my humble opinion, that I would say 90, at least 90% of us get it wrong in the first go round. You think it's going to be this customer base and it's not. You think it's going to sell at this price point because someone told you you should sell at that price point and no one's buying. Or you position it and price it to, you know, economically affordable, like it's just too cheap and people don't appreciate it. So there's this yep. really fine balance of how do you dance that dance and, and make sure your craft, your art, your design, your skills are being paid for for what they're worth. And you're actually satisfying a need out in the marketplace. Oh, uh, I hope people wrote that down because <laughs> that, <laughs> that was good. And a hundred percent, it's something I'm I'm always I'm always revisiting my pricing to see if if there's a right fit. And my target market turned out to be ex completely different. I thought it was me. Right. It turns out to be women. So it's funny, yeah, yeah. So. It, it's you're you're speaking my language. Um, one thing I picked up on though, when you said guess, uh, it sounded kind of Newfoundlandish. You're from Newfoundland. I'm from Newfoundland. Yeah. That was <laughs> the first time I detected any uh, Newfoundland in your the way you speak. There's a few <laughs> words. There's a few words in there that people, if they know it, they know it. Like if they're you know in the know. Um, but I I left Newfoundland when I was 19 and. I don't know that I ever really had a strong accent, but um, speaking of that, like when I left when I was early and I started taking risks like early in my youth, let's just say, um, I was thinking about this just last night. I was thinking, I, I'm starting to piece together how entrepreneurs come on, become entrepreneurs and get really brave to start their own business in whatever discipline it's in. 
And I feel like so many people have talked to lately, um, they have a story where they did things at a young age. They took risks, whatever it was, whether it was going away to school, leaving the nest, leaving the safety and haven of their family's home or their home province. And I think one of the biggest life hacks on earth for me was leaving my home province at such a young age because I was like a bird out of a nest and didn't know where I was going to land. I left for Alberta when I was 19. Didn't know I had $250 in my bank. Wow. And I thought that was a lot of money. Right. And my parents, my parents were like, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, I'll be fine. Um, and I was very hungry. So I got out there and I found work and I made money and I ended up going to school eventually, but I did things different, but I kind of did the risk-taking early. And so my whole entire life of the past 20 odd years, like has been nothing but taking risks. And so to, so to really go all in on a company or your craft or your design work or your art is nothing new for me. It's almost like a natural, I mean, I don't think I would have had any other choice in life, but to be an entrepreneur, because I feel like it's in my blood. And yeah, it's really interesting. I don't think anything else in this lifetime will ever satisfy me other than just creating things, selling those things, creating new things and constantly evolving my skills and learning more and, and then selling those skills. And I just, Mm -hmm. I love the process of, of continued learning and always learning more about the marketplace you're in and the entrepreneurial world and what that all looks like. And there's a lifetime of learning to be done. I don't yeah. think an entrepreneur figures it out in a couple of years. I think you're going to be in this right till the bitter end. And I think if you love it, then your life's going to be pretty fulfilled. Yeah. I, and I think, I think um, entrepreneurs are probably some of the most creative people I've ever met, to be honest. Uh, yeah. oh, more absolutely. creative than a lot of artists that I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to unplug my 3D printer. Oh. There we go. Um, I agree. I feel like it's such a beautiful um, complementary career path if you're an artist or creative type to embark upon entrepreneurship. And, you know, I kind of wish at NASCAD they had that creative entrepreneurship lab when I was there. I think that would have been I would have been all over that. And I feel like that is the perfect thing to have in design school or art school, because chances are, if you're an artistic type, creative type, um, it's going to be a solo road quite often that you're going to go down because you're, you're, you're crafting your career literally and figuratively. And, and it's the business side that you just don't learn about that you really just got to figure out through trial and error. And that's, that's unfortunate sometimes because it's intimidating too. And, and yeah. sometimes that intimidation drives people just to take a different type of job that they don't love and they do their craft on the side. But um, if we just had a little bit more knowledge out of high school or um, post-secondary, I feel like a lot more people would feel a bit braver to, to say like, no, 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 like I love what I do for a living, which is whether it's you know, design or painting or sculpture or jewelry making or anything else and uh, and encourage them to go all in on that because right now the world is in a desperate state in need for creativity. 
like the whole entire world is redesigning how we live, how we communicate, how we engage with our built environment, how we shop online, communicate mm-hmm. with each other. And it, like the world is so ripe for new creative minds. I've never seen anything like this before in my life. And I feel like people are scared because they feel like it's really risky right now to start their own thing or pursue their passion or leave that nine to five job. But there's never been a better time in history, in our history, mm-hmm. to start to leave that nine to five and go all in on what you want to do. Um, I just feel like the time is so perfect right now. I agree. I agree. Uh, it's, and there, there's so many different ways to earn a living. Uh, it, it's, it's, yeah, with, with the internet, you can have like five jobs. Like, <laughs> And you have like a global community at your fingertips. Like you have the yeah. attention of, you know, 90% of the world right now. And anyone who's, you know, in, in you know, I want to say like developed countries on a laptop, on a computer, working every day, working from home. So people yeah. are, are so, like, they're like a captive audience and they're looking yeah. for new things to look up and buy from and, new things to do so i mean there's just never been a better time yeah so what initially drew you to nascad um and like what you you were more interested in design or fine art i I think i read you were in design yeah yeah oh all design yeah i um it's funny because i started off in website programming okay the year 2001 I was out in Calgary and uh, did a website programming program and hated it I hated it so much I couldn't even stand to look myself in the mirror because I was like this is not me I did this because other people pushed me they said oh you're creative well you should go into back then it was a lot of emphasis on like web design and programming and you know so Uh so I listened to other people who said to me how I should use my creativity. It was such a shame. Like I was a 20 year old impressionable young woman. And I thought like, Oh yeah, they're right. Like I need to make money. I can't just, you know, do what I want for a living. Um, and so I did that. I couldn't stand it. Um, and then I left there and I ended up applying to, uh, to Concordia in Montreal and they had a design art program, which basically was like product design and had us in wood workshops and metal smithing workshops. And like, I felt like I won the lottery. I was like, this is the design creativity lottery, but I still didn't feel like it was quite the right fit because they were making me do a lot of art history and that just wasn't my jam. I just wanted to make things so desperately. Um, And then I finally applied to NASCAD and transferred all my credits and everything to NASCAD because I originally wanted to go to NASCAD, but someone told me that that may not be a good fit because they don't offer design. It turns out they did. I listened to other people again, like when I was younger. So, so I finally did the, my own homework, figured out NASCAD is exactly where I want it to go. It's where I should have went from day one. Mm. And uh, I finally left Concordia. I applied to NASCAD. They accepted me. And yeah, like the rest is history. I had an amazing experience at NASCAD. I, you know, I, I crafted my own experience there. And by that, I mean, like I did all the required coursework, but I really went all in on, on everything I had to do. And, um, I met Glenn Hogan, who's still a professor there. Mm -hmm. In fact, now I think he's the chair of design. 
And he, it, I caught wind that he was allowing certain students to do an independent study in their final semester. And he is a man who is very deeply involved in industrial design and product design. Okay. And so I just thought like, this is the person I want to work with. This is what I want to do. And I crafted my own independent study and I wrote it in great detail and I went to him and I didn't know him. And I sat outside his office every single day for a week until he finally agreed to see me. And he was really busy and most days he wasn't there. And the secretary would always say, he's not here today. He'll have to come back tomorrow. And I went back every single day. Was it Linda? No, I can't remember who's in the office at that time. Okay. But anyways, um, he finally agreed to take me on and it was just a game changer because I finally got to do what I love to do and all of my experience and all of my coursework at NASCAD and everything just kind of led to that moment. And so anyways, that was my experience at NASCAD in a, in a very long winded way, but it was amazing. (laughs) That's cool. Um, what I, I graduated in Oh four. Were you, this was after Oh four, I'm guessing. Oh seven. Oh seven. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we kind of just missed each other sort of. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I just seen your your progression, and I think a lot of people that I went to school with actually were kind of similar in terms of. Um, so we, I was mostly on the communication design side, and but then some people would just like branch off into, like I think one guy was making chairs and stuff like that, like oh. soon after he graduated. So it's it's interesting how like your your mind sort of expands once you you get into spaces like that and you see like oh I can apply it to this and this and this yeah well I always tell people now that you know people complain that an undergrad degree is a little bit useless and I disagree completely because I think looking back on it an undergrad degree teaches you how to learn teaches Mm -hmm. you how to experiment with different fields with different lines of thought And an undergraduate degree is just there to help you experiment. And I think if you really kind of hone in on what you want to do, I think a master's is brilliant to like go deeper down that one uh, lane. Um, And so I, you know, in a master's, I learned how to apply what I learned. So I was not, I was no longer learning how to learn. I was then applying what I learned and it was a really different experience, but a really cool one as well. But um, but yeah, NASCAD let me experiment with all that. They let me experiment with like graphic design and typography and marketing and um, layout and different things. And then also product design with the, the woodworking shop there and so much more. So it's where I learned, you know, how to really hone my skills with my software, with creative software. Mm-hmm. It's where I learned all the hands-on training that I needed to really succeed in prototyping. And yeah, it was just, it was such a cool experience, but um, yeah, I hope other people can kind of feel that same energy at NASCAD. I, I don't know. I haven't been back in a while, but I'm actually going to go check out the port campus today. I'm going to meet with Glenn and um, see what that port campus is all about. Oh, nice. 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 Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a great place and I definitely wouldn't be where I am today had it not been for that but I also went on to do a master's and had a sort of similar, except mine wasn't in the creative space at all, but uh, it did unlock another thing with me in terms of business and how to think about things and 
is what led me to starting Art Pays Me. So there you go. Yeah. Where did you do your master's? I did the uh, master's of information management at Dow, Dalhousie. Oh, awesome. So yeah, that's why I kind of like my, I have a weird multi-career brain in that way. Um, but in a lot of ways, they all overlap because it's just a different form of design. And that's what I kind of started to learn is that I used to think of design in a it's strictly visual and now I see it as systems and I see yes. creativity in so many different avenues and not just whether you can draw well or paint well or, you know, come up I with agree. typical ideas. So I agree. Absolutely. It's yeah, and you kind of hit on a, an interesting point because you said um, it's not really having to do with design. And I feel like we kind of give ourselves titles, don't we? Like we give mm -hmm. ourselves a title, like Dwayne's a designer, Christine's a designer, so-and-so is an artist or this or that. But what if we didn't have a title? What if I was just free to flow between art, design, um, engineering, science, um, healthcare, like, you know what I mean? Cause I almost feel yeah. like we kind of pigeonhole, or, pigeonhole ourselves and say like, oh, this is what she is. This is what he is. This is what they are. But what if we just start removing titles? Because what if you're just creative? Yeah. And, and regardless of, of how you're creative, you're you're more of a creative, uh, a fluid creative human. Let's just call it that. Because I feel like it would just give you so much more freedom to do so much more and think outside of your field. But we oh, you're right. Put ourselves in a box and say, this is what I am now that I have this degree or this is what I am now that I, you know, have experience in this field. But I'm starting to think maybe things are a bit more fluid. We just restrict ourselves with words. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it, and th this, it's those labels are not necessarily, I mean, they help other people understand us, I guess, but they, they hurt us yeah. <laughs> ourselves. Um, yeah. yeah. So when you um, think about, your career path do you have uh, a person that you're like this is who I see myself or are you just like charting your own trail I think um who I am changes every four to five years so if someone <laughs> knew me 10 years ago I would argue they don't know me at all now <laughs> so and that's with my career too I always say that I live in kind of like five-year pods like okay. five okay. years, I'm all in face and eyes into something, love it. It gives me life. And then five years later, I'm either evolving that into something new or I'm doing something completely different. Um, but I feel like I'm just always wanting to continually um, shape shift and uh, reinvent who I am and what I'm capable of doing too. Because I, I sometimes I put like a ceiling on it, like, okay, well, this is probably the extent of my capabilities and then I catch myself feeling that way. And I go, wait now, why am I, why do I feel that way? Like, I think the sky's the limit, right? Because we started off in women's health. And then I thought like, we're really boxed in to women's health. And, you know, when we started producing medical devices, uh, people gave us so much crap for that. They're like, well, I thought you guys were women's health specialists. Like, I thought you guys were, you were helping women. I thought you guys had a passion for that. And it's like, yeah, we did. And things have changed and the world has changed and it would be, I'd be a fool and a liar to say that, like, I'm not going to change with it. Like, I don't want to just kind of 
say our creativity is only in women's health. I love women's health. It's a, it's a cause that I will forever want to advance and help out with, but I don't want to end there. I feel like Granville Biomedical is so much more because what I did during the pandemic so far is, especially the early stages, I took an inventory of, okay, so who's in my company and who's on my team and if I have other skills, abilities, capabilities, I bet you they do too. So I did a bit, a bit of a, an assessment, like whose background entails what and who's comfortable to kind of evolve with us as we start to grow. And, you know, I said to the company, like, guys, we're going to be making swabs now. And I know that's really weird. And I know you're all part of the company because you love the women's health piece and you want to, you know, impact change there too. But we're going to also impact change in healthcare by creating medical devices. And I hope you guys can see the same vision that we have. And that is, you know, we're growing, evolving company. And if we get too rigid about like, oh, we started off in women's health, we have to stay there and just in there. I think that's how some companies end up failing because you miss opportunities because you're very stubborn about like, no, this is who I am. Again, it's a title. Oh, they're Mm -hmm. women's health. There, there are women working in women's health and yeah, like surprise, we are women working in tech mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of like what we should have positioned ourselves as to begin with, but it was our mistake that we thought the women's health piece would be more memorable and stronger. But now I think we're just going to march to the beat of our own drum and just start moving forward with medical devices and Let's just see where that takes us because I think that's an exciting journey too. But you know what? Uh, maybe that's just the way it needed to be because that gave you at least some credibility and you established a, a name. Like if I think about, say, uh, a Virgil Abloh and um, working for his creative director at Louis Vuitton now. So, I mean, people saw him as a T-shirt designer, streetwear guy or whatever. And now he's like creative director of the like you know Louis Vuitton so uh, it's but it it's establishing that credibility so then you can show the full range of of what you have uh in your pocket I guess so yeah because I feel like the danger with with creative types is we we put ourselves in a box with a label and then the even more dangerous part is when we let other people label us and keep us in a box and keep us small or keep us very specific to what we started off with. But some of the biggest success stories I've ever heard of were companies or entrepreneurs who started in one area and it ended up like their success didn't end up in that area. Like their success started or was creative because they allowed the idea to grow and evolve and change into something completely different. Like, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a typical example, but like Facebook started off for university kids. Yeah. And, right. And then now it's for everybody. Right. Like my great uncle is on there and like my little cousin who's five. So, I mean, like it's just everybody from every walk of life. Yeah. And the same could be said about so many other types of companies and industries. I don't like to give those big outlandish examples, though, because then I feel like people compare themselves to that and they feel like success is only measured by money mm-hmm. and companies that are scalable like like Facebook and I think success for an entrepreneur or creative type is is literally doing what you love for a living. That is like the first measure of success and the main measure of success in my mind. Are you pursuing your passion? 
are you making money doing it? Can you actually sustain your life doing it? It doesn't matter how much you're making. Do you make enough to live? If the answer is yes, you are extremely successful. Yes, indeed. Right. And so that's what I think people get scared of when they, when they think about embarking upon their own entrepreneurial thing. It's like, well, I don't know if I can scale to be a multi-million dollar company. Like that's what a lot of people think. Cause that's what people want you to believe, but I don't, I'm going to start pushing back on that narrative because I don't believe success is measured like that. I think success is measured by happiness and yeah. yeah, you're, if you're really truly pursuing your passion and doing that every day, you win. Like you've already won. Yeah. Yeah. My, my friend Eleanor has, I can't remember what she calls it, but she has a, a process uh, related to that where it's like, you know what, not everybody wants to, to scale to that size uh, of a business. And it's okay as you have to be self-aware enough to know like where you feel comfortable. Uh, like for me, I, I still want to do design. I don't want to be at the point where I'm delegating all of that. So right. I, I'm intentional about that at this point. Um, someday that could change and that's that's the other thing because when you said that too i have limited myself because i'm like art pays me is this yeah and it's like says who i I can change that if i want to and people might get upset or be like i don't understand this but that's okay like if you notice a, a a gap that you're missing and something's not working sometimes you just have to regardless of those voices that say you shouldn't you're going to get pushed back on anything you do. So, I mean, yeah. you might as well just craft it the way you want to craft it. And if art pays me, turns into something completely different, that's okay. It's all about art and yeah. getting to do it. And art is a very fluid category. So yeah. I feel like, yeah, same thing. It's like right now I'm trying to think about how are we going to tell everyone when the time comes that we're, you know, maybe moving away from women's health, maybe all together for, for right now, or maybe mm-hmm. for good. I, I don't know, but some of my mentors said like, you need to let people know, you need to let your customers know, you need to kind of sunset some of your products out and, and really kind of go all in on the medical devices. And, and I realized that, but our website, our name, everything's been very synonymous with women's health and female anatomy and whatever. So how do we now shed, you know, where we started and really bravely, say like, no, we're medical devices and people oh. are going to push back on that constantly for the next while. And it's like, yeah, that's fine, but we're still going to be medical devices. <laughs> like, yeah. how, do you, how do you just kind of put your, you know, your stake in the ground and just own it and not give a crap what anyone says? Cause we, we get a lot of, we get a lot of criticism with everything we do. Like every decision I've made, there's been a lot of mentorship in the past couple of years. And most of it has been great. But, you know, part of their job as mentors is to really push back on, like, why are you making that decision? And how did you make that decision? And where does that take you in the future? And sometimes too many mentors is just too many cooks in the kitchen. So we're trying to now just kind of, like, go down to a, two or three mentors that we really trust, that we really, really, um, their advice really resonates with us, and just kind of stick with them mm-hmm. to uh, help move forward with us. Because it's it's been very confusing you know, especially now as we, we are literally confused about like, do we drop women's health? Do we keep it? Um, we just need to, at some point, just be brave enough to just own where we're headed. Well, thank you for being vulnerable about that. Cause that is a, that's a challenging spot to be in. 
Yeah. How, what was the general like if and if you don't want to share this that's fine I understand but like the general feeling in your staff were they like okay with that pivot did they understand or are people pushing back um in the beginning there was a uh I don't know I I don't really know what was going on in people's heads. I know that last year it was out of necessity that we were going to make this pivot, or I guess almost two years ago, 18 months ago, March, 2020. And I kind of positioned it in kind of a comical way. And I I held an emergency staff meeting and I said, guys, we're going to be going from um, basically vaginal models to nasal swabs. And Mm -hmm. they have nothing to do with each other. And you won't find any overlap in those two products that we're going to be developing. But uh, I just want you guys to feel excited about it because this could be the future of our company. And this could mean that we all have jobs for years to come. So I, I want everyone to kind of let me know if there's concerns. And everyone seemed confused at first, but really excited to embark upon it because I made everyone part of this pivot. So, you know, I, I just said, like, we are a small team. We really need to lean on each other now to do this because it's going to take everything in our team to do it. And, uh, and yeah, like, and then in turn, whoever's contributing towards this gets their name on our patent. And, you know, like, so there's like a lot of cool payoffs that have come from all this. And I think our staff has really done an amazing job at leaning into it keeping an open mind, embracing uncertainty. Um, Cause what, what I know as a founder, I embrace uncertainty every single day, every single hour. But when you come to work for us, we don't want you to feel uncertain. We want you to feel like you have a stable job, you know, for every contract that we sign and whatever. And when we basically had to tell our staff, there's no more certainty, it's COVID now. We don't know what this is gonna look like. We will be making medical devices. And I know it's a departure. We had to, I guess, just hope for the best that people were also going to embrace it as much as we did. And uh, and they did. And I think I, I want to believe they did. Everyone seems to be having a good time. <laughs> okay. So everyone seems happy. And I, I absolutely think the world of our staff, I think that they are the backbone of this company, like their hours, their time, their dedication, their commitment. Um, it's been a, It's been a collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. every single day since we started the company and even especially the past year and a half but i they're very valuable to me <laughs> that's that's great that's great what uh, well how many staff do you have these days it, we're pretty small we have five people right now okay uh, yeah so we're still quite small and I, I would love to to grow the company but it's like you said right now i'm comfortable with this like i know it sounds really small for a tech company and it definitely is but this is what we can manage right now with so much mm-hmm. stuff going on. And we have all the skills internally that we need. So until that changes, and I hope it does, um, then we're just going to stay small for a bit longer and just stay mm-hmm. lean. Like the lean methodology is so important. And it has been for us from day one. And I'm talking like frugal, like no one in the company sees that they get a paycheck every two weeks. But like on my end, I am like splitting hairs to make sure like I use and optimize every single piece of material and every bit of resin for the printers. And like, I just try to save money every corner I'm at. So yeah, (laughs) interesting. I love it. 
I love it. I love it. Uh, so I'm trying to respect your time. You got to go. Um, but I have one more question and it's, you know, so you sat in on, on, a, on an alumni meeting uh, the other day, I think last night. I can't remember. Time is escaping me. Two nights ago. Yeah. Sheesh. Uh, and one of the things that is always an issue is this idea that artists don't have to pay attention to business or money or whatever the case may be. What is your advice to any artist who wants to make a living as an artist? Uh, what would that be for you? Um, treat it as a business. And I, I really, like I, I talked about in the beginning, I really feel like every craft, every, every type of artistic inclination or design aspiration, like there's, there's money that can be attached to that. And you, you win when you, get, when you are able to sustain your livelihood by doing what you love as a craft you're never going to live for free. So as much as like, we want to feel like, Oh, I just want to paint or I want to sculpt or I want to whatever. And I don't care if I get paid. It's not realistic. Like you need to get paid for what you do. And also your time is worth something. Your craft is worth something. And I think we just need to treat our creativity as a business. And it just goes back to that creative entrepreneurship, um, hub at NASCAD and teaching people business skills and, marketing i think marketing is so big mm. are you going to position yourself out there there's a niche market for every human on this earth whatever it is you're making there's the internet that has you know um all kinds of websites and places that you can sell and exchange ideas and um you know create income from but uh yeah i just think it's a matter of of uh, understanding it's a business or it could be a business how do you convert it into one? And then you win. Yeah. Facts. I agree. 100%. <laughs> um, and how do people find your company online and get in touch and learn more? Sure. Yeah. It's granvillebiomedical.ca. And we also have granvilleswab.ca because that's okay. our medical device one. So we might merge those two eventually. Um, we're on all the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, we do post some interesting things on Instagram. So if anyone's interested, like in the visual side of what we do, we put a lot of stuff on there. LinkedIn's more business. Twitter's more kind of things in the moment. And uh, yeah, but I, I always encourage people like reach out to us. We're always hiring interns. We usually hire, last year we hired two NASCAD interns one in the one in the winter, one in the spring. Um, we're going to hire two more interns now: a product design intern and a graphic design intern. And we posted it at NASCAD, so hopefully we can get some interest in those. Cool. And we're always looking for bright minds to join our team as well. And um, we're based. We I founded the company out of Newfoundland, but I have a presence. I live in Halifax. I'm based out of Halifax. So I encourage people to drop by and meet me at Volta or, you know, like connect with me over social media and, um, and please like by all means apply to our company or just reach out uh, info at granvillebiomedical.ca and just say hello and send your resume and you just never know what opportunities might pop up. Cool. Sweet. Uh, Christine, thank you. You dropped so many gems and uh, this is exactly why I wanted to have you on the podcast. And uh, 
this is amazing. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Art Pays Me. Thank you to Langy Beats for the theme music. You can find more of his music on YouTube. If you got anything out of this, please rate, review, or leave a comment on whatever platform you're listening. You can find out more about Art Pays Me at artpaysme.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. I'm at Art Pays Me on all of those platforms. With that, we're out. Peace.